The real challenge for us is to, with limited resources and the context at the moment, means that we need to be lean and we have so much to improve on the product side, but we also need to generate some revenue from specific demands, but without forgetting the vision of building one of the best analytics tools out there for the near protocol and the Aurora protocol. That was Didier Pironi, a near ecosystem OG that you may know from his previous role as product manager from Ref Finance, the leading decentralized exchange on near, or most recently as a co-founder of Pikespeak, the leading analytics tool on near. This was a really interesting conversation when we covered Didier's journey from Paris to London and from a consultant at PwC to a Web3 builder. Didier was slightly sleep deprived because he's got a three month baby, but as the conversation progresses, we progressively wake up and really get into the deep and meaningful. I enjoyed picking Didier's brain around the transition from a professional services mentality to an innovation mentality. We talk product, we talk user experience, we talk about hypotheses and thesis for how Web3 may play out in the future, and much more. Just one final note, we recorded this podcast on the 21st of June, prior to the most recent wave of riots and social unrest in France. So just keep that in mind as you listen to the conversation. Without further ado, I'll let you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Didier Pironi. Enjoy! Welcome back, friends. Today, it is an absolute honor to have with me Didier Pironi, co-founder of Hikespeak. Hello, Didier. Hey, hi, Vivi. How are you? I am so happy to see you. Yeah, exactly. It's been a while. Been a while. I don't know if you knew, but because I am the host of the Zoom meetings for Ref, when people join before, after, or during the meeting, whatever, and I'm not there, I get an email and I got a notification of you joining last night, but you were technically one hour late. Yeah, exactly. So actually, yeah, I tried to join yesterday, but yeah, I missed, I missed the call. Anyway, I will try to be there next week, but you're still the host, right? For well, that. You're still the man. Yes, technically I should be. Was it daylight saving, the baby? Yes, the baby is, you mean my baby, of course. Yes. Yeah, as I told you before, so much choice, but it's, yeah, it's quite a journey. Gia just turned three months a week ago and it's fantastic. Quite, quite tiring, but yeah, all good. She's growing, she's grabbing everything. She's observing her surroundings. So it's, yeah, no, it's fantastic. Fantastic. That's amazing. Happy Father's Day. I, I really mean this when I say this, that I hope that you're already working towards the next one. I'm suddenly very worried about degrowth and depopulation. So kudos to everyone having children. Yeah, exactly. Now I normally start by asking people, how did you get into the wonderful world of crypto? But in your case, this is an even more interesting question because we go a long way back. We sat in the Ref Community Board Council for a long time. And I know very loosely that before you joined Ref, you were a consultant. And I also know, as people may be able to hear, that you are from the region of French. So I'm all super right. interesting to see how all these different paths intersect. And yeah, let's just start unpacking. Yeah, I've been in the crypto space for, I would say, my first 
crypto experience was back in 2014. And actually, yeah, one of my very good friends talked to me about the XRP ledger, which is now the Ripple ledger. And my friend told me, you should have a look at the XRP ledger. It's pretty cool. They try to solve a banking problem with those Nostro, Vostro accounts for the banks. And, uh, and using XRP as the bridge to facilitate interbank settlements. And so back then, yeah, I was, I read the XRP white paper and I was pretty excited about this innovation. And that's my first exposure, I would say, to the crypto ecosystem. And then I started to dive in and look at all the stuff like Bitcoin and, and, and Litecoin in 2014. But anyway, I was at PwC at that time and I used to work for, for, yeah, more than six years. I started my career at PwC in transaction services, and then I moved to consulting and I was mainly working at the intersection of, yeah, project management and corporate finance. After that, I had this opportunity to move to London and to work for Techstars and Barclays. They used to have a fintech accelerator program in London. And I had this opportunity to work for them and help those startups in any way I could back then. And it was such a great experience because I saw all those entrepreneurs and all this amazing energy around building innovative products, solutions, and trying to solve complex problems. And I think I was inspired by those entrepreneurs. And I was always very focused on the crypto ecosystems. I started to think about building my own company and I managed to, I managed to raise almost 300K to build crypto trading solutions. And so I started a company called Switeki in 2018 and we raised 1.5 million in trading capital and we run this crypto trading different crypto trading strategies for one year and a half to showcase a good track record. And the idea after that was to raise 30, 40 million because it's a very capital demanding business, but we failed to raise that amount. So I started to look at different other things. Maybe it was for the better. Like you could have been the yeah. next Avi. Yeah. Very profitable strategy guy. Yeah, exactly. And I started to look at DeFi, I think it was, yeah, 2020, so quite early. And I was for the first time exposed to the near protocol. And I saw Refinance, which was back then the first DEX on near protocol. And I was looking at that and I was, this is, this is fucking amazing. But they were missing a key P, which was everything related to analytics. So. I was involved within the community and started to chat with everyone working for Ref and the community and started to build this analytics dashboard for Ref. Then came the opportunity to be the product manager of the project and I seized this opportunity and then I was the PM of Ref for, yeah, one year and a half. And, and, well, yeah, we'll and, and, yeah. We'll do because we just ran through eight years of history. Yeah, exactly. There's so much there because. I identify several things that appear to me to be uncommon. Well, let's start with the things that make sense. PwC, transactional services, consulting, 
super interesting that the first one that you came across was XRP, because I would imagine yep. that the value position of what it was to do matched closely what you worked with on a daily basis. What I'm interested there is that not everyone that has a similar career path as you had has a similar journey into crypto, exposure to the technology and yep. I guess growing interest over time to the point where they migrate. So I'm wondering, can you identify what were the elements that made the switch? Was it Techstars? Where along the way would you place it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Techstars because Techstars was such a great experience because I was finally in the middle of, I would say, a very strong entrepreneur energy. And I think that was the spark to see that you can raise money to achieve a certain dream or to solve complex problems. Back then, access to capital in London was very, I wouldn't say easy, but people were willing to do business. What's your idea? What problems are you trying to solve? Tell me about it and then deal. I was amazed by this business environment, which was not the case in France. It was a different mentality. It's not a question of where do you come from? What's your background? It's not about that. It's about what are you trying to achieve, right? And if I have enough confidence, and if I think that you are the right guy to lead that journey, then I'm going to bet on you. That kind of mentality was very much aligned with my will to actually build something. So Techstars was definitely the spark. And I was surrounded by amazing people. Chris Adelbach, who was the managing director back then, and one of the most prolific business angels in the UK. The guy was so inspiring. And see that energy, see how he was pushing entrepreneurs to succeed, to give everything they can. I think I was, yeah, I was, I discovered something new. And then came the question, can I do that actually? So yeah, Techstars was for me the spark, definitely to, to go towards this entrepreneur journey. So that's awesome. And it reminds me of a similar experience that I had Ethereum wild days, early days, 2016 to 2018. And then I worked very briefly for a law firm in Sydney. I was very strategic, like I picked a partner that was working with crypto, but we had a lot of work with startups and like early stage businesses. It was a very similar experience. I could see the legal workload, which is very dry. It was very boring. Like I could do it. I was probably not the best at it. Maybe not differentiated as such, even though they were invoicing a lot of money for my time. But then I could see just like the passion that the entrepreneurs came through. Yeah. And there was always a constant theme of we don't have to ask for permission. They came to us to tick the boxes of what was required by regulation. But there was no law telling them how to build a business. Like that side is on you and it's a creativity and the execution and a very interesting way of solving problems. It's yeah, this may be a problem in the past, but now we've got this technology or now the price points have changed or now we're going into a new market. Yeah. I was really fascinated by that. It's like thriving in chaos kind of thing. The time I started going to a lot of networking events, some through the law firm and our clients, but a lot just like startups in general, introduced to a lot of concepts such as growth mindset, fixed mindset, and basically everything that I absorbed, I was like, yeah, this is my tribe. 
David, you've already touched on something that I, I picked it up in the back of my mind, almost like a stereotype. And I'm really glad that you've started touching on it because I'd like to see if you can expand the difference between France and the UK. And maybe I'll give you a prompt. I listened to a podcast this morning, 20 minute 50, French dude. He said, in France, we've got fantastic engineers, preschools, great maths focused education, et cetera. We just suck at building companies. <laughs> it's a very difficult question. And, uh, and I think it's quite easy to, to fall into cliche. Actually, the startup scene in, in France is very strong at the moment. And you have, I would say, well-known entrepreneurs like Xavier Neal, for example, who built a very successful telecom company and then is invested a lot in the entrepreneurial scene. So I, I think France now is actually a very strong place to, to build startups. And I think it has changed a lot over the maybe the last two decades. So I would, I would like to say that it's not the right place, but I think that the real difference is maybe on the business side and how do you approach investments? I haven't tried to raise capital in France, so I wouldn't, I'm not sure about the differences, but from my experience within the UK, I really like the approach. I think it's pretty brutal in a good way. People are interested in what you can achieve, your credentials, of course, but really the vision and how, could, how can you lead that? And I think in France, it's potentially less, I would say, business oriented. People really focus on credentials first. That would be my takeaway on the topic. But I think you have an amazing it, yeah, startup scene in, in Paris right now. Oh, I agree. The 20 Minute VC, that AI series, is actually fantastic. I would recommend it to everyone. And there is a very obvious trend, multiple of the top AI guys that have been on the podcast and in general of the lead researchers are either French or based in Paris. And there's a very strong contingent, not only in Paris, but even in Europe more broadly. It's definitely been changing recently. I guess it's always an issue of are you the underdog or fighting like a current or is something that the environment pushes? As we're talking, especially thinking about the different experience from the UK and France, I'm wondering whether there may be some historical reasons why there's this behavioral patterns passed down to people. Like for instance, in the UK, yeah. they seem to invite people to think big, go out there. It's okay if you fail. It's very accepting. It's very... Yeah, it's very open in that sense. I think that in France, it's more, okay, look, maybe we fucked up in the past. Let's just play it safe. Here are the credentials. Here are the pathways. Here's like the tried and tested way. And obviously not the innovation space, but maybe more so culturally. They're like, fuck it. We shouldn't really try to do much more than this box. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And I would add to that comparison that the facts that in the UK, it's, there's a different approach to risk. I think it's easier. The infrastructure is way easier for people to take risk. For example, setting up a company, it would take me probably less than three days in the UK, or even in one day you can set up a company, a limited company. And in France, it's a way more uh, long process. 
I think the infrastructure to, you know, take risk is way more adapted in the UK than it is in France, for example. That's a quite important point. And the second one would be, how do you experience failures? How do you, and everything related to resilience, right? As if you fail, then I think in the UK, you always have a second chance. But in France, probably too. But I think, yeah, it's, I, I would say that maybe it's different. Yeah, there's definitely something different there. I don't know how to pinpoint it. Like it's not obviously one-to-one. -one. There's actually quite a few degrees of separation. Let's just say France, it's Mediterranean broadly. It's close to Spain. And Venezuela has a lot of Spanish influence. There's definitely something different. It's if you fail, it dies. your fault because you tried. And across the pond, it's if you fail, it's oh, at least you tried. Did you learn something? It's, yeah. it's interesting. I'm, I'm curious, which part of France did you grow up? Were you interested in technology while you were studying? Were there like any like earlier indications for Ripple that you may be interested in this area? I'm not sure it would be relevant to say where I grew up. I grew up in the east of France in a fantastic place called Metz, which is a city near Strasbourg. My business school was very tech-oriented, and the name is actually Tenecom Business School. So you have part of the answer in the name of my school, and it was very much oriented computer science and technology. And the weird thing is that back then I was more interested in, I would say, the business side uh, rather than the tech side. And then now I realize that I'm way more interested in the tech side. I actually sometimes have a look at some lessons from my business school because there are so many interesting things that I would say I missed. But yeah, that school was amazing. And I was surrounded by nerds and tech guys. And I guess that played a lot afterwards, although I was not reali realizing that back then. That's awesome. I am sorry for asking. I know that for some reason, geographic location can be like a sensitive topic for some French people. I worked in Paris for like, I was in Paris for more than 10 years. My joke used to be that when you ask a French person where they're from, literally no matter where they're from, they always describe it in reference to Paris. Like, oh, Paris is, yes, it's like nine hours from there. And I'm like, it's not even close. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, no, the reason why I ask is because stereotypes, the French are very good at protesting. There's a contrarian, rebellious aspect in the culture. Sometimes it is channeled in different ways for different causes. But a really interesting common theme of most of the guests in the podcast is that really, regardless of where they grew up with money, without money, what they studied, there's usually something there in society that even without realizing it at the time could go back to the child. It's like plants to seed or it could be independent thinking, could be like, just, I'm going to keep my options open. And usually that is to see that when it comes in contact with crypto, they see the opportunity and they yeah. decide, okay, I reckon that this is going to be it. Especially if you came across it in 2013, 2014 and all the conviction that it takes not to have gone away along the way. I can only imagine the transition of going from PWC, status, reputation, predictable income, career progression, yeah. to work for a DEX, which when you joined, it was very small. And 
put a very small chain as if that wasn't enough. Then you quit the decks to start your own company. And you're right. When I started to be interested in crypto in 2014, I was not really understanding the significance of it because I was missing critical experiences within the business space. I was not understanding, and I'm probably still not, how does a bank operate and how crypto can help and empower people. I was not understanding the full significance of it, but I was, I was taking the wave because people were talking about it. I got intrigued and then I started to read and I saw so much energy. I knew something was happening back then, although I was not understanding the resonance of it. So yeah, I took the back end. To be honest, I doubt if anyone really knew, even back in 2018, even in 2020, the significance or the potential. That's why I keep saying that, sure, some elements may not be decentralized, but it is very much a decentralized movement in the sense that there's so many moving pieces and yep. they keep building on top of each other and unlocking new areas of opportunities. On that line, I wanted to first congratulate you. You did a fantastic job at Ref. I miss your blog posts. I miss you hosting the, the meetings and the product updates. The product team is still good. It's just not as good as communication. The second thing, I was really impressed at how Revlock managed to continue innovating as a decentralized exchange, even though yeah. the idea of an AMM is very well understood. I was constantly impressed and I really appreciated how the team kept like pushing the boundaries and improving on things that maybe everyday users would not have really picked up, but that every time that it was shipped, the improvement was like, ah, this is actually way better. I was wondering if you have any lessons, any stories from your time of breath. And I guess for context, and this also goes to trying to unpack your, I have to say, somewhat shady upbringing. Usually when people listen to these podcasts, they look at someone that seems to be doing really well work that is admirable, that may be a weird term, and they may be on TikTok or jerking off or whatever. So it's, I think that in the same way that you have a tech stars mentor and that really pushes you in one direction, it's just interesting to see what people have done in the past and how they have progressed. So yeah, stories yeah. from Ruth. I wouldn't know where to start, but I think that's crypto back in 2016, the first key use case was crypto exchanges. And the great thing back then was accessibility. So you have access to the market in a few minutes. You do a KYC, then you can start trading on the platform and you can start experiencing what the market can offer. And that was something new. This mentality and this accessibility culture is still so strong within the crypto space. But the difference with refinanced or every other open source project is that it amplifies this accessibility message because you work for the common base and a common infrastructure. And I think I really managed to, I, I was amazed by that at refinance. So I started like a guy coming from nowhere and I was asking questions on the Discord channel. And Ilya, the co-founder of Near, was directly responding to me. So you have access to people and no matter 
where you come from, your background. You just can ask questions and people and key people will answer you. I think that's the key, I would say, the backbone of the crypto culture, especially within the DeFi space. I don't know if you're a Harry Potter fan, but you may recall that Albus Dumbledore had a saying, help will always be given to those that ask for it. And toward yeah. the last movie, after the Battle of Hogwarts, when half the school is destroyed and Harry's technically dead, Albus says, I've, I praise my ability to play with words. And then he says, I've been rethinking my saying. Help will always be given at Hogwarts to those that deserve it. And I'm wondering if it were to translate that beautiful quote from the headmaster to the DeFi space and to crypto space now. Do you feel like we've moved on from, there were very few people back in the day and it was very easy to have direct access. What point were it maybe more saturated, especially from tourists or speculators or outright scammers and people have to do a little bit more to show that curiosity, to show that willingness to cooperate, to show that ability to work. Cause yeah, I've been reflecting a lot on how to make sure that people that enter the ecosystem today still have access, but also acknowledging that we just need space to do deep work and it's just not feasible to, to have those communications like we had them back in the day. Yeah, I think they still have access to everything and to those amazing communities. I think the difference is that now they need to manage noise and pollution within the community itself because you have people polluting the space with, I wouldn't say, yeah, irrelevant questions, sh short-term stuff, like short-term objectives for them. And they only want to, they only want to serve their own interests. And I think now people, the accessibility hasn't changed. It's about navigating the space that has changed because you have to deal with that shitty content. And now it's pretty a big amount of shitty contents sometimes, and you need to manage that. But you still have amazing contents. I was, after the other exploits, I was involved a bit within the other community. And yeah, and it's always the same story. The founder will engage with people. You will have very interesting inputs. So I don't think it's, it's as changed. Yeah. If that makes sense. It makes total sense. And, and I agree. I was more thinking it from the point of view, say I'm at some students at Hackathon and enter yeah. the ecosystem. What I always tell them is make sure that if you walk into a telegram chat and 10 people asking stupid questions and really not doing anything, yeah. don't be shy of showing your passion of asking the big ambitious questions. Cause as you say, somebody will notice it and that's where the doors keep opening. Yeah. And yeah, I guess that's my, yeah, exactly. my key yeah, takeaway. Yeah. Cause that was the same. I was technically unemployed at the time. And I was spending an irrational amount of time on the near telegram, on the discord servers, on the ref ones. And in hindsight, I guess that it was pretty obvious that I got noticed and got noticed pretty quick and a different opportunity started coming up because I was basically explaining like the documentation and all the blog posts, like in detail, like I wasn't just a mod yeah. sharing links. I was like. Talking like I do for two hours on the podcast now, but with every rando that came into the Telegram chat. Yeah. And at some point, especially over time, especially as we were entering like the peak of the bull market, I realized these people haven't even gone to the website or they haven't read the description on the Twitter profile. Like it was 
very low stakes. And that's when you realize human time is worth money. I keep doing this. I, I think sometimes people are missing that, right? Because it's one of, it's one of the, what's, it's one of the best things within the crypto space. It's this give first approach and mentality, which actually defines, I think, what is a strong community. And it's this give first mentality. You're going to ask questions. Someone is going to spend time, unpaid time to actually answer you or to give you maybe some, some ideas regarding what's the right path for that. And I think that's a fantastic thing you still find within the crypto space. It's a really interesting phenomenon that the longer you spend in a large group, people that think alike and usually the people that think at all start to connect. And this has happened in many communities, in many groups. There's like a law that the groups continue to fragment to smaller and smaller cohorts where you can just have more frequent conversations at a higher level of quality. And every time that happens, I just keep thinking, this is amazing for the people that I guess get promoted to a better group speak, but it's shit for the people coming in because they could potentially qualify for the bigger groups, for the better groups, but now there's no one there for them. So I'm thinking, this is completely at the top of my head. Do you think that maybe we should have something like artificial office hours? where we coordinate with some OGs and we drop by some of the larger channels and have meaningful conversations or just meet new people. Yeah, just try to stay in touch with the grassroots. Yeah. And from the builder's perspective, sometimes, as you said, you have people asking, I wouldn't say stupid questions, but very straightforward stuff. But those people, you have to respect them because basically they are also your users sometimes. Sometimes you have like good feedbacks in those questions themselves. So it's anyways, yeah, it's very interesting to work in such a decentralized fashion that, that, that's worth something. I'm still not realizing actually the, yeah, the positive outcome from that. Dude, I keep having every hilarious experience surreal. I want to write a book. I just need to. Secure the bag first, and then I'll write a book from a from an island in the Caribbean. You're welcome, dude. I had two really funny experiences. So the first one was like a long time ago, and we're on the main near channel, and whatever we just talk like we do. And this person, allegedly Ilya, drops by and he starts talking. And I've always been pretty, pretty proactive against scammers and like grifters. And I start saying, that's not the real Ilya. And he's like, no, it's me for real. And then, so I look into the profile and the number shows up and I'm like, no, it's not the real Ilya. Like I can see your number. Like, it's not even like a good scammer. And he DM'd me like, oh, I'm sorry. Like my privacy settings only show my number to my contacts. Like we had spoken previously and he'd saved me. And I was like, holy shit. Ilya saved me as a contact and I, yeah. for a brief period of time, had his number. So that was a funny early experience because once again, it just shows that yeah. no one is too big to drop by and have a chat. And that's exactly. what's so weird. I want to drop by one of these chats and everyone's like, oh, hey, BBC here. And I was like, yeah, I mean, why wouldn't I? Second experience is if Soul Hackathon, I met Alex Shevchenko at the bottom of the building and then my team was hacking it 
you know, they're patching together this Frankenstein, half the code in, on Solidity and Aurora, half the code like, recycled Rust, some key pummel. And I was trying to find Shevchenko of all people to help them solve some questions. So I see Ilya walking by and I run after him and I'm like, hey, Ilya, have you seen Shevchenko? And he's like, oh, I think he's downstairs, whatever. And then I'm like, maybe you can answer this question. And then Ilya says the funniest tone because you know that he's being serious, but also joking. He's like, or maybe they could read the documentation. And I told him like, dead set. I may have actually smacked him in the shoulder like I do when it's like moment of insight. I was like, dude, there's one thing that I've learned during this hackathon. This is my first hackathon. Developers do not read documentation. <laughs> and it's like, oh, trust me. I know. Yeah, we do. We do. So, read yeah. It is what it is. Yeah. Who's we? Product managers? Yeah, good documentation is like key, key, strong differentiator. A hundred percent. But then yeah. don't read it. That's yeah. the problem. But yeah. They prefer to ask direct questions. That's being lazy though. They, I think that, at least the devs in my team, they were very hands-on. So they were like, oh, like, this looks easy. Like, I can just do it. And it's the approach where you're like banging your head against the wall until it works. Like documentation is if the car breaks down, check here. It was really interesting. It's definitely not the way that I learned, which is probably the reason why I still don't code. Yeah. Um, when it comes to learning, I'm very structured. I start, I need to go in order and know what I've learned and be able to put it together, which is strange because my mind doesn't really work that way anywhere else. But Rest. Yeah, Ref. At what point when you joined Ref, did you start to realize the beat that near protocol is? and the potential of the core tech stack and, you know, how early we were. When we released concentrated liquidity, so after more than a year since public mainnets, and I think that's because I used Uniswap concentrated liquidity and the cost was fucking amazing, right? To add liquidity, to remove liquidity, to swap, the cost was crazy on it. And especially during the bull run. And when we deployed it with Ref, the cost was ridiculous. Less than a dollar. What I'm saying, less than a 10 cent. Actually do the same actions. So I was just, wow. Anyone serious who wants to deploy a strategy on top of Ref or even build, even build on top of Ref, the, it's really at a fraction of the cost of what you can find in the market. And that's a game changer. For people that may not be familiar, how would you describe concentrated liquidity in a few sentences? Yeah, concentrated liquidity is basically the ability to, to provide, to be a market maker on a defined range of price. So if you are familiar with, I would say, traditional automated market maker, basically you provide liquidity from zero to infinite price. And you don't care about that. Concentrated liquidity is the ability to define a price range. And actually you're collecting fees from people trading in that specific range. And basically the idea is to maximize your profits on a very specific range, which is more efficient to deploy liquidity in that range rather than the full range from zero to plus infinity. I was amazed by the speed of the transaction within the near ecosystem, the cost of transacting. That was the two most obvious things for near that stood out back then and still. It 
very interesting to me that a former, let's call it a professional services person would pick a concentrated liquidity first, because a trend that I've noticed is that AMM is very retail and it's ideal for like long tail assets. You know, it doesn't need deep liquidity. It's a very simple formula. You trade one asset against the other one and there's a price. Yeah. But when you look at institutional finance and the, like the real world finance, most of DeFi is a joke, really. Over-collateralized lending. And it's like finance for kids almost. So the example that I have to tell people is that maybe something like concentrated liquidity is being lost on most of the crypto crowd because it's like a level of technology that it's like several notches up when yeah. it's technically the same user experience to just swap. Maybe you get better pricing, but you wouldn't really know otherwise. But what's interesting to me is that, that technology or that use case has the potential to now reach new crowds. The crowds that we're not yeah. impressed by the AMM may now be like, oh shit, I get it. Like we do concentrated liquidity when we do a billion dollar swaps, whatever, yeah. CD Bank and HSBC. Do you see that there's, I don't know if you're still in contact with a professional crowd, but have you seen any of that traction or interest starting to appear? Yeah, but just to come back on concentrated liquidity, I think I was aware that near was different in terms of speed of transactions, cost. But I think concentrated liquidity was, gave me this really strong appetite of how good the protocol is actually, because there's so much knowledge embedded in this smart contracts and, and the ability to execute that knowledge at a very low cost is, it's a very strong message. If you have a very simple contract, the fact that the cost is nothing doesn't really, it's good, but it, it doesn't really catch your attention. But if you do something like very smart at a very low cost, then that really gives you something like a different appetite. Just to go back on concentrated liquidity. Regarding your question about institutional adoption, I think, yes, we are still early, but we also need to understand the previous ways focused on institutional adoption. And what I mean by the previous way is basically Corda, for example, Hyperledger, and all those strong organizations where the only focuses on institutional adoption. And they were, they spent capital like six, seven, eight years ago. And what are the use cases today? So first we need to understand how those organizations have succeeded or failed on that, on, on that segment of the market. But I think we have, yeah, so many things that we can do on the blockchain. And it's, as Vitalik says, it's not because the blockchain is the best solution, it's just because it's more convenient because it's, it costs, it costs less money to deploy something on the blockchain rather than doing something in-house for those organizations. And I think the organizations start to realize that. So there are basically two questions. What's the cost of deploying one of my use cases on the blockchain relative to its traditional cost? And second question is, What's the cut compared to other competitive blockchain solutions? And we need to have those benchmarks, right? For example, take Sweatcoin. They are processing millions of micro payments slash transactions. What's the cost of doing that relative to 
the traditional cost. It wouldn't be even possible in a traditional ecosystem because cross-border payments is, are still a nightmare. But what would be the cost compared to that? And I think we need to have those key benchmark, key metrics for those organizations to, to help them to understand why blockchains are more convenient as, a, as an infrastructure to deploy the solutions. And when you have a look at refinance, it's yeah, a DEX, right? It's a DEX. Imagine running a, like a crypto exchange compared to a, like the cost of running a crypto exchange compared to the cost of running a decentralized crypto exchange. That's the killing feature. Yeah. You're coming at it from a very financial perspective. You always have. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you had this like way overdone financial analysis and pro projections and shit. And I was like, dude, just put rewards on that pool. No, not hard. But to me, the question for corporates, obviously the financials need to make sense. But the killer or the deal breaker is user experience. Like, why would you do something that gives you a worse user experience? I'll give you an example. Melbourne has two airports. One of them is the main one, the international one. It's got bus, taxis, 24 hours. The other one, it's like a smaller one, mostly domestic flights. You can usually get really cheap flights from that one. Yeah. For a reason. It's just a worse user experience. Like people are willing to pay more to fly out of the main one because just yep. getting to the other one, it takes longer. There's less buses. The taxi ends up being more expensive than the flights. Like, it's just so much of a hassle. So I think that was the piece that was missing, Hyperledger back in the day. Yeah. We were ahead of the technology like five years, at least, even to this day. Like I give a lot of credit to the Ethereum community because they have been able to hit some very impressive engineering feats. But the truth is, it is nowhere near where it needs to be. You know, it becoming proof of stake, amazing. Then pondering on account abstraction, great. Imagine going to a corporate five years ago. They'll be like, are you joking? This is not going to fly. Yeah, I agree. And it's, I think it takes time too, because it's such a new paradigm to understand how many things you can manage on, on, on the blockchain compared to like a traditional stuff. But the exciting thing for me is that assuming that we take your box around it making sense financially, because it does seem like near is low cost, scalable. But you need to take another box. And assuming that we take my box. And the oh, other box is... We'll, we'll not, go through the list. Yeah, but the other box is that I think Ethereum was created in 2016. And this famous, I would say, yeah, known rule of thumb that says it takes one, 10 years to become an expert in something. And smart contract infrastructure was created less than 10 years ago. So we don't have yet the pool of talent to execute effectively stuff on that. And we must not underestimate that time. And so I think that's another box to tick. Back then, we didn't have this pool of talents, people. Now it's a different story because we have use cases, we have market examples, and we have talents. But in the talent category, it's important to distinguish the category to do or the talents to do the core infrastructure. And also to be able to distinguish that somebody has to be first. Like usually with these points, 
there's always some lazy asshole that is like, oh, we're five years away. So I'm just going to chill for five years and then come back. And it's like, no, that's not the point. The point is that you hustle for 10 years and then you reach that expertise. But going back to the core infrastructure, if you look at the iPhone, by definition, we didn't have 10 years of smartphone experience until it hits the market. And it was actually quite a small team that developed it. On that core infrastructure, let's just call it the phone and the chips and the user experience, people start building apps. And it is true that those apps, that's where we probably see the life cycle of 10 years because they have to keep making getting better and more useful. But yeah, I wonder what the parallels would be in Web3 because if you look at the near core team, Ilya, et cetera, they're pretty savage. And I think that the near stack, especially as it is presented now, the blockchain operating system, I really like the new wording and the new narrative around this is a stack for you to operate just like a startup. Have hypothesis, pack yeah. something together, sip it quick, experiment, iterate, off it goes. I totally agree. We're going to see that many use cases from the corporate world and that will go beyond utilization of real assets, physical assets. I think that's only one subset of it. I think it's only the beginning. I'm still super bullish on that and we'll see many use cases. Just because we have more experience, we are not in the experimental phase as we used to be anymore. We are still are, but not, not as experimental as was the case six years ago. It's a new tech. It's a new tech, 2016. It's a baby. Exactly. That's the thing. That's why we're going to make it fun. Of course we want mass adoption, but as you have rightly pointed out, we can't skip the fuck around and find out steps. Maybe they're not the things where you get funding for. Maybe they're not the things you build your career on, but it's so important to get together have ideas, patch things together, they break, sometimes yeah. they work, somebody else builds upon it. I think that basement hacker culture, we really need to bring back because yeah. even if we're able to onboard some big corporates and get a big boost in users and transactions, that is, I got like the low hanging fruit of migrating someone that has already been doing their business and product development for who knows how many years onto a yeah. new tech stack. And it's really ignoring the building, the new business models and the new ideas. And what I usually try to explain to people is, I guess the two paradigms. If you think about the composability or it being a public blockchain and any contract being able to interact with each other, it's like having public APIs, yeah. but that can't be shut down. But where it gets more interesting is the API is calling into a company product or a database. The database is still there, but now there's the possibility of the database also being distributed or shared, which means that it doesn't really belong to the company behind an API. They can give much more control for the users. And I'm really surprised at how many people are missing this narrative because when you look at ChatGPT and all these large LLMs, large language models, they're suing each other now over all this data. Reddit, Microsoft, and other Reddit moderators are going on strike because they're not getting any money. And they'll have to settle in court what they've done with all of the data up until now. But to me, the big opportunity now is we have so much data that we could be capturing through these new models in the open web and putting the power back to the users. Yeah. And 
I could not help but notice that you have started a data analytics company and uh, you mentioned something during one of the town halls that really piqued my interest because I can see the potential, but I need someone to explain it to me. Okay. Social graph. Yeah. So I'll open the door to Pike's Peak, social graph, and where do we get value for the next wave of growth? Yeah, that's, that's really a huge topic and I'm certainly not social graph experts. I think Evgeny coming to this podcast would be like something amazing for you once we're those specific social graph questions. A decentralized social graph is something very powerful. So what is a social graph? Social graph is the ability to see the connections between people within this social application. So I have a profile, I follow you, AVB, then the social graph is basically the ability to see my profile, your profile, and the fact that we have a connection together. That's the social graph. So I think Facebook, at the beginning, they were giving this ability to developers to visualize the social graph, which is something very powerful because you can see like different clusters of people being connected together and depending on different criteria. Let's say I like these different hobbies and my friends like those different hobbies. And then we realize that we have a cluster of people who like cats and those people are connected to other people who like other stuff. And I think, yeah, Facebook removed that ability to visualize the social graph because obviously it's something very powerful because you can see what, what is connecting people to other people and you can potentially influence that. Going back to the social graph on near, yeah, I think. If, yeah, go ahead. Before we jump on the near one, just to confirm yeah. if what you've been explaining and some of the things that I've heard in, in the interwebs are correct. Yeah. So being able to map these connections is valuable. And yeah. I guess that the more connections that you can make, the more valuable it gets. So we can think almost as having more and more variables to inform decisions. So not only are you and I connected, but if your income is A and you're located in B, there's just so many variables that you can start to almost imply on each other. Um, yeah. I know that there is a company in Brazil, I think it's called Slow Bank or something. They started keeping people credit based on the social graph, people that yeah. had not had access to traditional banking in the past, but based on their connections and the credit score of their connections, they were able to start extending lines of credit. Ilya, I've talked about him in person about some similar ways of doing this for under collateralized credit. You've got a wallet, depending on who that wallet is connected to. At the time, we were looking at the type of transactions that they've made, how long they've stayed, whether they've received payments from the foundation, whether they've transacted with Ilya himself, whatever. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing is that we're actually starting to add an actual social graph we can start to see a much richer layer of data through social interactions that start to resemble a lot what we know as social media in the Web2 world, except for the exception that all these interactions are now on the blockchain, if yeah, I understand correctly. 
Correct. Anyone to basically be able to pull that information and say, oh, look, AVB is actually someone in the ecosystem because all these important people interact with him consistently or yeah, whatever. Yeah, I'm on the right track. Yeah, exactly. I think, Jeff, I think you got it. The main difference between a decentralized social graph that Facebook, for example, is that no one owns the data on the decentralized social graph. It's resistant to, like, it's a robust solution. Like, no one can remove your connection. No one can remove your comments on this decentralized social graph. No one can remove your profile. So no one is controlling the data behind it, which is something very powerful. But that doesn't mean because people always say, own your data, but that's misleading in my opinion, because that doesn't mean that someone cannot have access to your data and the contents you've been creating on the social graph to take advantage of that. You don't, the difference is that you, nobody owns the data but that doesn't mean no one can exploit your data. And that's my point here. Because everyone has access to text. Everyone has access to yeah. Not not, not exploit, sorry, but take advantage. Oh, right. Exploit is not the right term. Sorry. Ex- exploit not, is the heavy term, friend. That we gotta not ex- not exploit, but take advantage and monetize your data. Sorry. That's the right term. Yes. I'll run through the common tropes of the web two world and then ask you some burning questions of what in my head. I know that you may not be able to answer them all. I do not prepare or give my guests preparation for the interview. So this is all on the spot. Yeah, no preparation. And by the way, Eugene, he's got a VAP invite to the podcast anytime that he wants. Yeah. So when people say, oh, Facebook, I gave you all this data, you're making all these billions. I think that a very important distinction to make at that level is your data, it's like oil, like fuel. Yeah. Facebook built a vehicle. Like you don't own Mercedes-Benz because you put the fuel in the trunk. So there's yeah. an endless number of possibilities of the way in which that data could be used. I think that up until now, it's been done mostly for advertising purposes, perhaps outside of the example of the bank in Brazil. But when we enter into Web3, that's yeah. when, once again, if the data is accessible by anyone, then Correct. we invite builders and entrepreneurs to think, okay, what could you do with this? So it's almost like a data commons. Right now, yeah. we don't have access to Facebook, there are troves of data. The question as we go into the web free space, is there any way for this data to be collected in a different way so that the user has more autonomy over the way that they share it? Say, for instance, that I release a Tinder-like application tomorrow, people swipe right or left on things they agree or disagree. Yeah. I'm able to capture a shit ton of data because all that content has been labeled. Yeah. But that content lives almost in a compartmentalized bucket. Let's say a Calimera shard. And the user has to agree to somebody accessing the data. And maybe at that point, there can be some payment for it. Like, hey, I'll give you whatever, 50 bucks. And I'll get a year's worth of your on-chain data. Is it something possible? Would it make sense? Is there interest? It's really possible to encrypt the data at the blockchain level, as you said. Could be on a private shard, could also be another solution. And then protecting 
not protecting, but empowering people with the idea that they actually send private messages on this social graph, for example. And then you would give to them the ability to monetize the, their content by telling their content to analytics companies like us, basically. So that's something that could be possible, absolutely. But the other great thing about having those, having this contents public is that anyone can access this data, which means that anyone is incentivized to bring a data layer and a, an analytics layer uh, value proposition. So you encourage competition and competition, in my opinion, leads to strong products. But how would you pay back? How would you, how users can be incentivized and how can you, and take advantage of that? That's a really, that's a strong question because nonsense, for example, nonsense, or even us people, they do transactions on the blockchain, which means that they create contents. And then thanks to these contents, we are able to tell stories. But does the user have anything from that? At the moment, not really. But it's also because analytics company, they solve a problem because the way data is stored on the blockchain is different from any other mm. traditional data infrastructure. Mm. So there is a cost to actually read those data, do something human readable for users. So there's a cost and yeah. yeah, each business model and each application would look very different. So maybe we'll just work through a couple off the top of my mind. Let's start with a normie example, just to highlight some of the limitations of the real world and to force us to think yeah. proactively about the issue, even though we may have been trained to write it off. Say I catch a taxi tomorrow to the airport, something happens in the taxi. And whatever, I land in Australia 16 hours later and I tell my friends, oh my God, you're never going to believe what happened in the taxi. After slipping, whatever, slipping pills on the plane, I realize that person was actually really nice. They went above and beyond. I want to give them a tip. At that point in time, there's a real physical barrier where I have no contact with that person. It's just basically not possible. And I think that if you look at the real world, you'll identify many instances where that's the case. You're at this giant open and the ball boy has been standing there under a 40 degree day under the sun and they do their job in a very diligent way. There's no way for you to tip them. And there's just like many different relationships between people that even if people wanted to engage or interact, it's just not possible. Honestly, I think that basically only sex have figured out a way to coordinate large groups of people with each other. So moving on to the Web3 world, the question is what money is being distributed? Like users keep data, sure, users keep the application alive. Maybe the simplest example would be, say, Reddit. If Reddit earns whatever ad revenue, that would be one tier where it's super simple. The issue there would be, can the technology remove all the cost structure and the complexity of money in, money out. If it were a smart contract, you buy ads on your social and money in, like, there's no human resources, there's no admin. It could very easily just go to whoever is active on the platform. 
or whoever is active within one component. So I think that it's about making more direct connections with people and maybe more complex cases would be like, hey, I'm open AI. I want to buy a shit ton of data to train models. There you have a multi-level, right? It's sure, I'll give you a thousand dollars for the data. But then if you build chat GPT and it goes to 10 billion, you're not getting any of that. So each case study needs to be thought through. I'm just like to encourage people to think about the possibilities and to join yeah. us in the public chats and discuss these big ideas. No, exactly. I, that's I, an I, excellent I think, segue, right? Yeah. But, but I think that's also one of the reasons, and if you ask the question to chat GPT, like what's the advantages of a decentralized social graph? I think one of, one of the answers will be like a way to incentivize users. And it could be a token for this community, as you mentioned, actually. So incentivize people to post meaningful contents and then people vote, downvote, and then you have a remuneration mechanism. That's absolutely possible. I wouldn't be surprised if social does something like that at some point. I wouldn't either. Okay. So I think that we've laid the groundwork. I think that we've started getting those creative juices flowing. Hopefully by now people are playing, are pausing the podcast and writing down some ideas and how to do the next Facebook in a decentralized way or whatever. At this stage, Pike's big interest is seen. The first yeah. burning question that I have, which is going to be a tiny segment, but I just need to know, I would be kicking myself if we end this conversation and I do not learn this. Okay. Where does the name come from? Yeah, it's uh, no one knows how to pronounce Pike speak. Speak, Pike, Pike speak. Like uh, I've, I've heard so many versions of it. Uh, anyway, so Pike speak is a mountain in the US and it's a very famous mountain race. So it's the name of the mountain in the US, as simple as that. No way. So, so you learn something. You're yeah. lying. No, I'm not. Google Pike speak right now. Okay, I'm going to tell you what I thought it was, and you're free to run with this story. It's just you and I, no one has to know. It's the better origin story. When there is like an insurrection and people are like fed up with whatever, the institution, the monarchy, the elites, and not so much anymore, I hope, but they used to go to their houses and burn it and chop their heads, and they would put their head in spikes to display to the town. Yeah, that motherfucker was bad. And we've established peace and order to some extent. And it was like a, it was like a warning, like a message, like, hey, we're here. We're watching. You, yes, we'll you keep you honest. <laughs> that, that's going way no? behind no, my imagination. No, that's going way behind my imagination. I had the scene. I it's uh, in the US. Yeah. I know I had the scene from the Beauty and the Beast, all the French going <laughs> to kill the beast. None of that. No, none of that. None of that. Well, that's Great, boring. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's boring. You're right. It would be fitting though, because Pike Speak starts as the fantastic analytics tool, which goes like the functionalities yeah. are so above and beyond what the traditional New Explorer allowed you to do that yeah. it did help a fair yeah. few of us. Not just manage our own finances and internalize just how much money we were losing, but also monitor a bunch of wallets, foundation, yeah. projects, investors, scammers, yeah. etc. But those yeah. were the origins. Correct. Tell us how Pikes Peak gets started, how it has evolved. 
And most importantly, what role is Spike Speak going to play in this social graph data economy world that we've started to imagine? Yeah, Spike Speak was born from this simple idea that there was a problem to solve within the near ecosystem, which was the ability for any user to visualize historical transactions for any wallets that's in a human-readable way, not like the near Explorer. And then on top of that, and this is only top of the iceberg, like providing dashboards and a 360-degree view of what's happening on the blockchain for projects, users, VCs, and so on, and help them to understand what's the activity on the near blockchain per verticals, what the money is doing, who is this guy, has he sent money to this exchange and just tell stories about what's happening on the blockchain. And then there's another side of the, of Pikespeak, which is things that we are doing with different projects and that's more on-demand request. So we are working with NDC and we are actually doing and deploying three indexers for them. So that's an example of stuff we can do for projects. We've also built their bus NDC DAO dashboards. So basically you can see all the financials of NDC and do some actions, votes, comments on those different proposals. So be involved in the governance process of NDC with this widget. So that's another example. Yeah, another project will come to us and say, I've been hacked. I need the state of my contracts before the hack to see who was holding what kind of stuff. So that's another example. So I think there's, yeah, top of the icebergs and then all the stuff we are doing with, with projects and that's more specific and customs analytics. And that's Spike Stick. That's, and we are certainly not, I would say, happy with where we are at, at the moment. Because we have so many things to improve. Our pricing, mo our pricing model is pretty shite. So that's the first thing. So we're going to change that. The second thing is that we are missing key events on the blockchain. For example, we are not at the moment parsing VEX decks or spin finance trades or tonic trades. So we're going to have that too. And uh, yes, there are so many things to do. We're going to build, we're going to iterate over and over again to improve the solution. And we have a lot to do on that. The real challenge for us is to, with limited resources and the context at the moment means that we need to be lean and we have so much to improve on the product side, but we also need to generate some revenue from specific demands, but without forgetting the vision of building one of the best analytics tools out there for the near protocol and the Aurora protocol. So Aurora integration is coming in a few weeks. We have a airdrop tour that is coming normally this week. And uh, yes, and we have so many other interesting stuff. Amazing. I like the product think around problem, solution, revising and identifying things I need to change, yeah. iteration. And just in general, continuing to innovate, take into account something that I feel very few projects do, or at least they never do until they disappear. 
yeah. market conditions, the necessity to adjust and prioritize. Yeah. It's a, it's definitely something that I like seeing people grow and mature and evolve in their career. And sometimes it seems like it's going backwards, right? It's like you have yeah. the operational excellence of PwC, and maybe you have the startup excellence of something like Rev. And then you start from scratch and you're like, hey, so the, there may not be much here yet, but you're actually bringing all these experiences. Are there any similar projects like Pikes Peak that you've seen across other Web3 ecosystems? Or even are there any parallels on how these kind of analytics tools are used or exist in Web2? Any other, anything that you hold uh, as a North Star, uh, as ideal? Where, where bikes should go or, or what it should be? The space is really competitive. You have hundreds of competitors out there. Obviously, the main one I would say is Nonsense. And they have, I think they've closed the 50 million plus rounds last year. So they have serious resources. They have a very strong user base. That's, I would say, not the North Star, but that's something we always have a look at what's happening on their side to try to get some inspirations and also try to stand out compared to them. And that's an approach. And you have many players around that, which means basically you read the on-chain data and you parse it in a nice way and you build powerful dashboards for your users. That's the first approach. The second approach is the community-driven analytics approach, which is something that is driven by June analytics. And that's a different way of thinking the go-to markets. And that example is more about you provide the database and the tools to tap into this database using traditional language like SQL, for example, and, and people will build those custom dashboards and then can share the dashboards, tell stories about it, and you have a community approach around it where you can, yeah, share and so on. And that's an approach, that's flip side approach. And that's so much interesting too. And that's actually working. And then you have other, I would say, specific data products that are more focused on a very specific subject, like trading, futures, or derivatives, options, and be the best at providing data on that specific vertical. And where Pike speak is... Can I tell you something crazy? Yeah, go ahead. I may take this out and I hate interrupting people. I know for a fact, because I can do maths, yeah. I've got memory. I know for a fact I've been liquidated multiple times. Bastion, Borrow, Avi on multiple blockchains. Do you know how hard it is to get liquidation data? I don't know why. It doesn't appear on my wallet. That's weird. Okay. The transaction executes on someone else's wallet, someone else's ledger. It's actually hard. Super interesting. Strange. The assets are technically on borrowed cash. Somebody else pays off and takes the money, and I'm just left there. Oh, I used to have more here. What happened? Yeah. Uh, I know. Now interesting. Yeah. Okay. On a serious note, I'm super curious. What has the reception from Near Foundation Pagoda has been like? Have Pikes Peak ever applied for any grants or I'm thinking in terms of public funding. Yeah. I could ask about business models, but for me, business models are something that can sometimes be delayed as long as the value is tangible. 
Yeah. Because then it's a matter about keeping momentum and putting it in more people's hands. Like realizing the value on your yeah. on your balance sheet is hugely easier if the value is clear. There's a lot of things out there that no one even knows what the value is. But yeah, I'm just really curious what the journey has been up until now. I know that GWG and Horizon are like much more recent events. But yeah, I'm also a connoisseur of mapping the evolution of the near ecosystem and the support for builders and core contributors. Yeah, so we got a fast grant from the near foundation. I think it was, yeah, last year. And the fast grant was 50K. So 50K to build like an MVP. And then after that, the idea was to raise money. And so we've closed a 200K plus CD investment rounds a few months ago, and we have different business angels, such as the founders of Nearweek and Ilya are one of our business angels. And then we have some VC companies, such as Nearweek Ventures, Hackton, and uh, yeah, and, uh, and sorry, D1 Ventures. Good names. Yeah. So they are good names. 200K is, I would have liked to close more, but yeah, 200K is not that bad. In the context of it's 20, basically what two people's salary and some bills yeah, it's, it's, per it's, year. It's, That's it. Exactly, it's it's the seven month runway from here, which which gives to us like some time, but not so much time. We need to kick some asses, and that's for sure. Yeah, I was thinking about the potential pathways as a public code, especially because yeah, that's a good question. I don't want to go into the near governance too hard on this one because, yeah, it's been very topical recently. I get very passionate about it. Yeah, and plus you have the near block conversation. When you... The what? The near block conversations going on. Yeah. Because they're out of funding and then they are requesting money from from the near foundation to to basically keep providing near week for... Oh, sorry, near block for the next two years. But anyway, that's another topic. So. Yeah, no, that's good. My overall thinking on that is if there is near to be distributed to the community yep. for things that drive growth, core infrastructure should be there. And I understand that the landscape, it's probably mixed because there's been some things that maybe we considered core infrastructure, such as the wallet yep. and AstroDAO that are no longer supported. And there may be mixed experiences with those teams. I am not privy to those. I just think that for the teams that have been able to prove value and execute, we should continue to support them. A creative style is getting how much money per month. I don't want to get too political, but yep. if we can't make money available for core infrastructure, but we have money to fuck around with the community, we're doing things wrong. Like core infrastructure is what keeps us alive. Yep. Community is great, but in parallel. Like we have to be able to prioritize. So you've got all my support, friend. Cheers. Yeah, I think... I'll send you 50 bucks. That's all I have. Good. Corinne is key. But I think we have the infra in place. And Ilya said that recently, and it really captured my attention. But he said, I think, that every new infra piece is a liability. At the moment, we need, like, new use case, new application that solves real world problems. And I think he's right to, to say that that doesn't mean you cannot start a new infra project or private infra project, but, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that the spaces that you rated 
but we have the infra in place. We start to have the very good tools to allow projects to deploy solutions, to have the analytics and data here on top of what they're building. So we have the infra. We have the infra speaking about the ecosystem. And then you bring the question of how do we make sure that those infra pieces are sustainable? And I think that's a very good question because everyone wants the infra, but no one wants to pay for it, which is also a problem. So that, that's a good question, which, which also explains why at the moment we are like a proprietary solution rather than instead of being like open source. But that might change. Yeah. But, but we need to generate revenue. We are a private company. We need to be sustainable. Hey, no revenue, no taxes. Hey, I'm, I'm going back to Australia to sort out my taxes. And I swear I already have anxiety. It's, it's no bueno. So you know but that on Bystick, you can download the, the story of your wallet. Yeah, it's a fucking disaster. I'm just going to send that to an accountant. Ah. Good luck to them. Like, <laughs> talk to Francois and get my liquidations in there. I've got so much shit to write off. Okay. But. It's really interesting that Ilya brings that topic. It is not an uncommon view. There is a really good blog post recently from C Node. Good friend, actually. I met him in New York during the New York Hacker House. I think he's working out for the Celestia ecosystem, but he's very good. Yeah. Just in general, like hardcore technologist. And he invited me and I met the name of the founder of, of Zcash and just like top tier thinkers. They were reminiscing recently about the value of tokens and why are there so many bullshit tokens going around that potentially the protocol absorbing the fees. So there should be a lot of applications that don't have a token, but like the base layer benefits. I put the article on the comment section if people are interested. I find it particularly interesting, Ilya bringing it up. And as a lawyer, let's see if I can argue both sides. On the one hand, sure, infra can take time, it's expensive, it's not really moving the needle immediately in the way that we may need. But as you say, it's some of it, it's obviously quiet, like it's not option, like a bloody wallet or the DAO where literally all of the ecosystem funds are in. But on the other hand, my issue has been, and I love this podcast because I've timed down myself over almost two years now, there are a lot of things it starts in a very naive way. And I'd like to get your insights as somebody that worked within Ref. My very naive observations, and I said this in Twitter spaces, I think you were there, one of the Twitter spaces after USN collapsed. Somebody asked, what is the nature of Nier? What is the flavor? What is the narrative? And I said, we are a builder's blockchain. We have never communicated that. We have a core tech stack that enables us to create user experiences and applications and do things that have never been built before. But the challenge is how do we get people in to build that? And the very broad generalization of the time was that side of the core team, no one is pushing the boundaries. Ref, Borard, Satori, Keypom, they're all core team members, former core DevRel, Proximity Pagoda. So the question always was, who understands this tech stack enough to push the boundaries? And at first I was like, okay, we're doing the basics to show people what it can be and then do it. My fear is that at some point, and you can probably pin it down to some hires in Pagoda. At some point they said, fuck it, we'll do all the core infra. And now there's a bit of tension between how much is Pagoda doing? 
some of these things are an actual liability we try to pretend we're the centralized ecosystem and some of these things are competing like outright other ecosystem applications you don't even have to be hostile although sometimes they are but the reality is how much funding Pagoda has I'm gonna have to say it is substantial and that Pagoda controls the developer hub five million near so the question is okay are we doing core infra or are we not doing core infra who's allowed to do core infra like those are the things where I'm like, I understand that maybe some things, it really has to be Ilya to be like, this is the standard. Unless we go for this, it's not worth funding. Fair enough. But some things I'm like, oh, I should probably be a little bit more open, more welcoming, as you say, encourage competition. Yeah. I'll leave that one to the DevRels to fight it out. But I'm also mindful that they don't like speaking too much. Yeah. And there's also the question of, what stuff are you putting in, in the core infra section, right? Because that could be obviously key developments of the blockchain, such as account abstraction, new standards, and so on. I wouldn't say data and analytics are an infra piece. I would more put that in the tooling section, but that's just semantic, that's just wording. And I think it's okay to have like different block explorers. It's okay to have different wallet explorers. It's quite healthy, actually, because we are pushing each other to build a better product. That's it. And we have a private, we have a business approach and we try to monetize what we are building. Pagoda has a different approach because they provide it. They want to have maybe something free that's different. And we tap into different users. So I think, as you said, that's okay to, we can coexist. That's it. Customer segmentation is super important. Explorer.near.org is the default, super basic. Honestly, I don't think there's been a single feature shipped on that since I started using it two years ago. Yeah. Neoblocks was like a big improvement and understanding customer segmentation. Neoblocks aims to be much closer to the ether scan experience. So yeah. we have to start to unpack, okay, people coming from Ethereum or EVM based, this is what they expect to see and what they're familiar with. And it's also free. So that automatically puts in a different bucket. And then Pikes is like power users. Like you just get things in a much more, it's a very different experience. By the way, I was going to mention it before. What I really like about Pikes is the conscious product decision of taking all the data on the blockchain, which is a disaster. And as you say, put it in very easy to understand and navigate human terms. Like I imagine it as you having a whiteboard and sitting down with the people and saying, Hey, we can organize this data, splice the bundle it in any way that we want to tell a story, to quote your words. And the name of this episode may be telling stories with data or something wanky and inspirational like that. And it does tell a story and the data is bundled in a way where it is interesting. And you know, what's really hard making data interesting. Exactly. Plus when you have low activity on the blockchain, there is low, there is not so much data and there's not so many stories to tell. So that's why activity on the blockchain is a key thing for us. I want to say something on, on, on the story side, because I think there's so much to innovate on that piece of the market, because basically what we can do is we have this live 
thread of what's happening on the blockchain. And we are thinking about an integration with ChatGPT to entrain the model to flag meaningful or what could be meaningful transactions. And then those transactions that have been flagged by the AI could be either displayed on a page, basically on a web page, and investigators like community journalists can have a look at that and curate those different events and then tell a story. And then we can create a new way of providing information to people and a way where people, where the machine would do the first, cut through the, all the data, flag some interesting stuff, and journalists curate what could be interesting stories. And that's something I think we could do at some point. How crazy can we make it? Yeah, we can make so many things. can make something crazy. Because what I think would be hilarious would be to get whatever mechanisms could be hard-coded patterns, yeah. could be the AI, but then invite the community to make up a creative writing, a story for what happened in that transaction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So it could be like, so for instance, I saw a tweet recently, somebody paid back 650,000 in Bastion, withdrew a near liquid stake with linear and then put it into borrow cash. I'm not yeah. sure if they borrowed some money afterwards, but we could just be like, whatever, uh, make up a crazy story about this. And it could be like, yeah, some dude was gambling in Vegas. He finally made his money back. I love found out it, it was a better way yeah. to put down collateral. I love it because it pushes people to be creative, to, to be imaginative. So we can do like a fake like, news, a fake on chain news uh, outlets. Yeah. Oh my That's God. It. Yes. We can be deliberate misinformation. We can do something funny like actually. Let's do that. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's a very market. We need something to entertain ourselves. Right. And yeah. we could even do it as a blockchain component and Something that I'd like to see mostly on the near horizon site now, it's the upload feature so that we can upload projects and yeah. ideas. Upvoting in general is cool, but we could even like rank some of the stories for each pattern. Dude, we're going to make this happen. On that note, before I forget, I thought there was a Twitter account. It was called something like skinny dolphins or like tiny whales or something. Remember that one? Yeah, of course. Dol near dolphins. Yeah, we near we, dolphins. We, we, yeah. Yeah, we have had so many stuff to do that we, I would say, forget about this one, but we, yeah, we haven't maintained it. But I think that was great. Shall we put it in production again? Yeah. Personally, I feel like I had fun with it and then it started contributing towards like a declining mental health because of the yeah, market, yeah. see wealth dumping and fucking each other and you're there holding on to a hundred bucks, like, please stop. This hurts. Like I remember I saw one from that skinny dolphin. It was like somebody sold like $4 million worth of mirror for USN and that swapped yeah. USAT and fucked off. And I was like, that was definitely a foundation person. Okay, just we could reactivate it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good I idea. Keep the bastards honest. Yeah. And that could be a life goal to grow the bag enough to the point where skinny well picks up your transactions. <laughs> exactly. That's good. Now, I know that, I don't know how pressed with time you are, but I do know that you have a three-year-old at a startup. So I'll respect the two-hour bangers. Can you tell us more about Near Horizon? 
Yeah, very excited about it. I think I started a conversation with New Horizon like five months ago with Ken and Lola from the Horizon team. And, and it was pretty obvious that Pikespeak could be one of the contributors of New Horizon. So we signed a deal to be an official and potential like contributor of Near Horizon and very excited about it. So we've done our Near Horizon profile page with Pikespeak. And I think the idea is for new projects that if they want to select us as a data and analytics provider, the deal would be for Near Horizon to subsidize a, li a Pikespeak license for them for the first year, for example. I think the idea for Near Horizon, like any startup incubator, is to provide perks. So you are part of the tech stores incubator, then you have access to AWS credits or you have access to HubSpot for two years and for free. And I think the vendors section of Near Horizon is meant for that purpose. Well, that's amazing because I know exactly what you mean because I just registered an American LLC down Wyoming. And I'm using this really cool service provider. I would actually recommend it. It's called Doula, D-O-O-L-A. I may have a referral code. I'll, if I find it, I'll put it in the show notes. I'll put the link anyway in the show notes. Okay. But it's really cool because once everything was done, I went to the perks side. It's crazy how much they give you. You're away getting your money back. If you take some of these offers, like for instance, they have an, a few thousand dollars for a Descript Pro membership. And that's yeah, the software great. that I use for editing all my podcasts and all the YouTube. And I'm like, I'm already paying like 50 bucks a month for this. If I get a thousand bucks, like I'm yeah, getting my money back. So I also created a contributor profile for the podcast. Nice. I just could be there, support, put transactions to the blockchain. But as you mentioned it, yeah. I may have a word with them directly and be like, hey, if there's any projects that would like to sponsor my podcast. I would happily cut them a deal and you pay me. Yeah. So go fuck it, mate. We're going to make money somehow. Yeah. Can actually Bikespeak be a sponsor? We need to have a private conversation about that. A hundred percent. Now we're talking. That's cool. <laughs> now we're talking. And the call. No, I love it. I've actually had many conversations with a really one team. We've all been so busy and they're super busy now, like building products. But it's always been in the back of our mind to find ways to potentially monetize. Not so yeah. much because we want or need the money, but because we just acknowledge that there is value there to be unlocked or realized. Especially, maybe you can share your experience, but it seems like building is hard. But what many people don't really pay attention to the very end is distribution. Like getting in front of people is really hard, especially once the product is close to being ready. And there's like a ticking bomb for the, yeah. for the wrong way to run out. So yeah, but, well, we're yeah. more than happy what to help people in any capacity. I think the best part is, as you said, you build a product first, second, you distribute it. And being in front of those people is really hard. But I think third, what's pretty hard is to listen to what they have to say. And in what they have to say, in, in what they say, they have like key they have so much indications on how you can improve what you are doing. And I think for me, that's, that's the best part. Yeah. Massive kudos Speaking to you and Francois. You guys have actually been top tier operators in that sense. I know that the 
from the very early days, there was the Pikes Peak Pioneers or something Telegram group. And uh, look, working from Australia, there's a very good chance that at any one time when you interact with me, I've been awake for 12, 14, 16. It's almost like having a baby without the baby. Yeah. And the energy levels change. Sometimes you're hangry. Sometimes you're grumpy, whatever the case may be. So I know that sometimes they're just like drop by groups, unload a bunch of feedback that may not be padded sometimes. I was always super impressed at how receptive you guys were. Because there's a big difference when you receive feedback and you give an excuse, like you let someone know why you did it like that. And you're like, that's good to know, but it doesn't really address the feedback. Exactly. You guys were always like, oh, ask more questions, trying to understand if there is a potential solution for it. Or it was always very subtle. And I was always impressed as well by the pace of execution. You certainly didn't fear to add all the early adopters in the ecosystem. Like Chloe was there and she's pretty straightforward as well with her feedback and, and demanding in some ways. So yeah, I think that Pikes Peak really stands out among. Thank you. We have so much uh, to do to improve the products though. It's only the beginning. It's a humility to accept that because I think that some people, and let's put this in the crazy story bucket, the narratives that we completely make up yeah. for the bot that we're going to create. I think that some people put so much work into the product and so much work into finding users that when the users come back with feedback, they're like, motherfucker, I put so much work to get you here. Yeah, that's a huge mistake. I don't want to hear from you. Give me your money and fuck off. Yeah, it's a yeah. terrible mistake. It's a really that's bad mistake. mistake. That's when you go to hire somebody else to actually take the feedback on board. Sir Didier, are you going to Neurocon? Of course. Of course. It's three hours away from you. Of course you have to. <laughs> no, I was going to plan a small team to fly to London, kidnap you and bring you over. I'm going to be there. I was pushing the team to use Keepom for the event ticketing. I think that's happening. So that's a great way to prove that on-chain event ticketing is such a great use case. I'm looking forward to being there, seeing you all. And I think we're going to have such a great time. The stakes are high. Exactly. Exactly. Matt Lockyer came to yeah. Korea yeah. with his wife and a six-month-old. Oh, wow. And we went out and we destroyed Korean nightclubs and dance floors. Like you have no idea. So whatever arrangements you got to make. Okay. I'll see you at your gut. <laughs> no problem. Thanks again for the podcast. That was great. That was fantastic. Sir, thanks so much. If you have any alpha around Spikes Big, definitely let us know. We're happy to push it. And let's jump on the sponsorship conversation. Exactly. Let's take care. Too easy. See you. That's the end of another episode. As always, I just want to thank you for listening because let's be honest, you are amazing. And I also want to remind everyone that everything contained in this episode is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast shall be construed as financial, medical, or any other type of advice. And you should always consult with licensed professionals before making any financial decisions. Make sure that you like and subscribe so that you stay up to date with the latest episode. We've got a steamy hot pipeline of guests that will keep you entertained right through the bear market. Stay safe out there and I'll see you soon. Bye.